when you're tired and you don't have enough energy, what happens? You get clumsy, you make mistakes you don't normally make, you're, you're not your same, your, your mood is different. So what do we think happens when the brain itself doesn't get enough energy? It's going to make mistakes, it's going to get clumsy. Alzheimer's disease really is a fuel crisis. It's an energy shortage in the brain. On an MRI, they can actually see that the volume of, of the person's brain has shrunk. Welcome to the Bodyman and Poleman podcast. I'm your host Seamland and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Our guest is Amy Berger and she's a blogger, an author and a researcher about Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. We're going to talk about what causes neurodegeneration and how you can protect yourself against this brain fog. But before we forget ourselves, let's delve into the world of body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Amy, I want to welcome you to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So maybe can you tell us, like, what's the current state of uh, Alzheimer's research? Yeah, it depends on um, what angle you're asking from. If you're talking about, you know, conventional medicine and the traditional doctors, the state is pretty sad. They they really have very little to offer that's effective. Um, if you ask a conventional neurologist or MD, they have no idea what Alzheimer's is, why it's happening, why it's increasing, and they certainly have no uh, idea of what to do about it. There's there's really no course of treatment. There's a couple of drugs on the market for this condition, but every single one of them basically does almost nothing. Mm. Um, at, at the very, very least, they may slow down the progression of Alzheimer's a very small, you know, small amount, but mm -hmm. overall they really do very little to, um, to make any sort of positive impact on this illness. So that's, that's the state. The state is... You get diagnosed and you better get your affairs in order because they mm. cannot help you. Mm. Yeah, it's quite, quite interesting to see that the medical community has failed you know, to even identify what's the main, main reason. So do you know what might be causing the, uh, this kind of disease? Well, yeah, I think um, it's not just me. It's not just that I have the secret. I mean, I've, you know, in, in, in looking at the medical journals and, and reading the scientific literature on this condition, it is very clear that Alzheimer's disease is a metabolic problem. Mm. And when I say metabolic, I mean it has to do with the way the brain gets energy. Mm. Alzheimer's disease really is a fuel crisis. It's an energy shortage in the brain. And they actually refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And those phrases are all over the scientific journals. Mm. And where that comes from is that this energy shortage in the brain is due to glucose. Um, neurons in affected regions of the brain lose the ability to metabolize glucose. And this is not new information. This has been known for actually a couple of decades now, at least since the mid-1990s. Um, now, why that's happening is still unknown. I, mm -hmm. There's a lot of speculation as to why, but ultimately that's the fundamental problem is that these neurons, to put it simply, they're starving to death. They're, they're withering, they're atrophying, they're actually wasting away. And um, this can be measured mm -hmm. on an MRI. They can actually see that the volume of, of the person's brain has shrunk. Yeah. Wow, I've seen those images, those, those yeah. scary pictures. Man. Yeah, 
your brain, your brain literally shrinks. I mean, this, and again, this is not new information. This has been known for a long time with this, with this illness. Mm. Yeah. You said like that it's linked to an energy crisis in the brain and, uh, it's quite quite interesting to hear that because you know they say that your brain needs a ton of glucose and sugar every day so does it is it like false information uh no no that's not false information but i mean you bring up a good point the reason it's such a huge problem when the brain is not getting enough energy is because the brain requires a constant supply of energy even when you're asleep even when you're sitting on the sofa watching tv and you think you're not using a whole lot of your brain power your brain is really um you know, even when you're doing nothing, your brain uses about 20 to 25 percent of all the energy in your body, all the glucose, all the oxygen. So anything that disrupts that supply of constant energy to the brain is going to have massive implications for your memory, your cognitive function, your personality. Um, and I, I sort of like to explain to people, you know, when you're tired and you don't have enough energy, mm -hmm. what happens? You get clumsy, you make mistakes you don't normally make, you're, you're not your same, your, your mood is different. So what do we think happens when the brain itself doesn't get enough energy? It's going to make mistakes, it's going to get clumsy. All of the signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's that we see can be logically tied to just a fuel deficit in the brain. They say that elevated blood sugar is also linked to like memory problems, I've heard. Yeah, there's actually been recently a couple of studies that came out that said um, high, high blood glucose, even within the normal range, but at the high end of the normal range, is associated with increased risk for mm -hmm. cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And um, people with type 2 diabetes who are treated with insulin have the highest risk for Alzheimer's disease. So it's not, oh. when I say type 3 diabetes, it's not that type 2 automatically causes it, mm -hmm. but the type 3 diabetes phrase tells us immediately that Alzheimer's has something to do with glucose and insulin in the brain. We might not know exactly what the problems are, but the minute you hear the phrase diabetes, diabetes. you know it's something to do with glucose or insulin, and this is inside the brain. Mm, yeah, but... Is like how much how much glucose does the brain actually need per day? Is there a set amount? Um, so they usually do say that the brain needs about 120 grams of glucose per day. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure a lot of your viewers are are very educated in this. They know just because the brain requires glucose doesn't mean that we have to eat carbohydrates. Mm. The human body is very good at recycling and reusing and we make glucose out of a lot of other things including amino acids, including fatty acids, and uh, sorry, and glycerol. Um, so in order to provide the brain glucose we don't necessarily have to eat pasta and rice and bread. Um, when when you transition your body to using a different fuel, you know, I, I assume your viewers know about ketones, I'm not sure, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's well, other... They do, yeah. They're quite, quite okay, so <laughs> if, you, if you go on a very low-carb diet, when your body doesn't have enough carbohydrate coming in, your body's forced to transition to running on a different fuel. And the fuel it will run on is fat. And as a byproduct of a fat-based metabolism, we produce ketones. And ketones are an alternative energy source for the brain. And depending on how high you can get your ketone levels, 
ketones can provide up to like 60% of the brain's energy. Now that's, that's very high. Most people won't get there, but most people 20 to 40%, you can provide a pretty significant amount of energy to your brain from ketones. And that reduces the amount of glucose that you need. I can't, I can't put an exact number on it, but you won't need 120 grams of glucose. You will need much less. And that glucose can be provided by other things in your diet besides carbohydrate. Mm. Yeah. Can you maybe give us some examples? Of, of the foods or? Or, or, or like, you know, how, how can the brain get the remaining parts of the glucose it needs? Other than... Oh, sure. Yeah. So when you're eating very, very little carbohydrate, um, you know, or fasting or not, not eating anything, your body will make glucose from amino acids that come from protein, uh, from glycerol, which is part of a triglyceride, the fat molecule. So that could come from either fat in your food, like, you know, olive oil, eggs, bacon, cheese, or it could come from your own stored body fat. Um, it can, so in, from the amino acids, again, that can come from protein in your food, you know, beef, pork, seafood, poultry, or from your own body proteins. And, you know, if you're not eating enough, it could come from breaking down your muscle tissue, which we don't want, you know, breaking down your bones and your connective tissue, or it also can come from the recycling of old worn out proteins that they'll just re recycle those amino acids. Mm, yeah, but there's really, there's really no, no risk of not having enough fuel to the brain, whether it's partially ketones and partially glucose, the body does very, very well at supplying the brain with, with energy. Would there be like a, any difference um, between uh, converting protein into glucose versus, you know, just getting the glucose from carbohydrates? Would it affect the brain in the same way? Is there any difference? Well, um, that's a good question. I don't know that there is a difference. I mean, glucose is glucose once it's inside the brain. Mm -hmm. But how the body produces it, um, one, of the, one of the single biggest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is chronic hyperinsulinemia. When I said before that type 2 diabetics who take insulin injections have the highest risk for Alzheimer's, even people without diabetes with no family history of Alzheimer's, with no genetic risk factors, independently of all those other risk factors, if you have chronically high insulin, you are at greater risk for Alzheimer's disease in the future. Mm. And so the difference between getting glucose from a lot of dietary carbohydrate versus letting your body make exactly the amount of glucose it needs um, is that your insulin is going to be low. In mm. one case, you'll have high insulin. In one case, you'll have lower insulin. And that's, that's a very important um, issue when it comes to cognitive function. Mm, yeah, I, I totally agree with your point and I love it that uh, even though, you know, there might be like that the cognitive decline and these other metabolic diseases, they're not genetically determined in a sense that they're not guaranteed to happen. You know, the way you the way you have the way you live your life and the, how you express your genes those are much more important exactly exactly and there there is a genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease it's the apoe4 gene I'm sure your your viewers are familiar with it it very very significantly increases risk for Alzheimer's mm. right if you have one copy of the gene you're at a higher risk and if you have two copies you're at much much higher risk wow. but a lot of people with Alzheimer's disease don't carry even one copy of this gene. They have no ApoE4 gene. And plenty of people with two copies don't develop Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So this 
this gene increases risk, but it doesn't cause the disease. It's like ApoE4 is a, is a very bad mismatch for the modern diet that's very, very high in carbohydrate. Mm. Um, it increases your risk, but if you don't live and eat in such a way to trigger that, if you don't cross that threshold, then you have a much, much lower risk of this disease, even though you have the genes that, that predispose you to it. Mm. So what, would, what, would, what should someone do who has this kind of a gene to protect themselves? Well, so the ApoE4 gene is believed to um, be the oldest form of this ApoE thing. And um, so it's believed that it was, you know, formed, basically evolved during our hunter-gatherer times on this planet. And the newer alleles of this gene developed later in human evolution. And so this gene is more suited toward if you want to call it a paleo diet or a lower carb diet, a diet closer to that that we would have consumed in those times. So the ApoE4 is the least suited to the modern diet that's extremely high in refined carbohydrate, that's extremely high in, in omega-6 rich vegetable and seed oils. So you, you want to return to a diet that's much lower in carbohydrate, um, maybe more, a lot more of your protein probably coming from fish and seafood, but not just, I mean, eggs are okay, you know, good quality pastured meats are okay, lots and lots of low, low carbohydrate vegetables. So the non-starchy vegetables, leafy greens, um, good fats, basically a, a, a paleo type diet that's on the lower carbohydrate end. Would there be some um, significance to how the state of our gut and microbiome affect your neurodegenerative uh, condition as well. It is believed that that plays a role. Um, I have not researched that as much as the metabolic aspects of the glucose problem in the brain, but certainly there are researchers who do believe that um, a a diet much higher in fiber, you know, much higher in in plant matter, you know, vegetables and maybe some of the lower sugar fruits um, does help. And and part of that has to do with that like the gut, certain compounds are produced in the gut and they can migrate to the brain and they may be beneficial for the brain. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't, I, like I said, I haven't looked into that as much, but um, I think, I think that's probably less important than it, glucose and insulin regulation, but it, it probably plays a role. Yeah. You know, and I mean, they call they call the small intestine the second brain. Um, yeah, so certainly we know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they call it that, but certainly, you know, we talk about getting a gut feeling or yeah. butterflies in your stomach. And that has to do with the way the gut and the digestive system affect your mood and affect yeah. your thinking and your cognition and how you feel. So um, I don't think it's, it's not unreasonable to suspect that some type of gut dysfunction could be contributing to this. Yeah, I, would, I was thinking like um, if if your you know sugar cravings they're mostly caused by the microbiome in your gut as well. So maybe like some people they tend to start eating more carbohydrates just because their gut is all messed up. Or, or yeah, but so my my question though is like which comes first? Why is the gut messed up? Your gut is probably messed up because you're eating a poor diet. Yeah. So it's not like get get one of these fecal transplants and put microbes in your gut. That's a temporary fix. What you want to do is change what's making your gut distressed in the first place. Change what's making the yeast grow. Change what's making the bad bacteria grow. 
and that would be a change toward a, a better diet. And we could argue what the best diet is, but True. you know, I think um, even if the gut is playing a role, you don't just zero in on the gut. You change the diet, and the gut changes as a consequence of that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it comes to show like you have to find this one point where you're gonna start implementing these beneficial changes, and uh, yeah, you have to identify where your where your weaknesses are in a sense of what changes you need to make. So maybe right. let's let's talk about how people can protect themselves against Alzheimer's and other these kinds of cognitive decline diseases. What are some maybe well, like what are some like first of all like dietary recommendations for a healthy brain? Yeah, so um, you definitely want to keep your blood sugar and your insulin levels within a healthy range. Now everybody differs on an individual level as to how much carbohydrate they can consume and still achieve that. Some people can eat a lot more carbohydrate than somebody else and still have totally healthy glucose and insulin. Um, so I can't really put an exact number on it, but you know, you want to get I would say the majority of your calories from healthy fats and proteins with, with a little bit of carbohydrate, mostly coming from vegetables, a little bit from fruit, from dairy products. You kind of want to avoid a lot of the grains and especially the refined grains. Um, mm. Most people do okay with beans and legumes, but some don't. Like I said, everyone really has a an individual level of carbohydrate tolerance. But I, I guess what I can say is you want to eat a diet that helps you maintain healthy glucose and insulin, whatever that may mean for you. Uh, but for most people, it does mean a reduction in the carbohydrate they're eating unless they're already on some type of low-carb diet. You know, the brain, the brain doesn't work by magic. It requires B12. It requires choline and zinc and magnesium and cholesterol. And, and so you, you want to be sure to eat nutrient-dense foods so it's mm. not just a matter of eating low carbs, but of eating low carbohydrate foods that provide a lot of micronutrients. Mm -hmm. um, DHA, the omega-3 fats are really important. Um, and you, I mean, that's, that's the dietary stuff. And, and I would say there are some medications that are very, very frequently used and prescribed within not just the elderly population, but in, in people of almost every age, certainly in their 20s and 30s and up, that can interfere with the way your body absorbs and uses these nutrients. And, and the one that comes to mind first is, is antacids, mm. you know, drugs that are designed to reduce your stomach acid. Mm -hmm. So when you impair your, your proper digestion, you're sort of like, you're, in, you're impairing your body's ability to actually absorb these mm. nutrients. So it mm. does no good to eat nutrient-dense foods when you're not actually digesting them the right way. And... Um, if, if we're talking about medication, I'll just say real quick how important cholesterol is for the brain. Mm. Um, your brain is, is built out of fat and cholesterol. Um, it's extremely, it's, it's about 20 to, again, same thing with the glucose and oxygen. It's about 25% of all your body's cholesterol is in your brain. Mm. And so another really, really common drug, you know, among, among everybody now, not just older people, are the statins, which lower cholesterol. Yeah. And you absolutely cannot have healthy cognitive function if you don't have enough cholesterol. And so to me, when you look at, at these medications that people are on for 10, 20, 30 years, and you look at our diets, the Alzheimer's epidemic to me is not a mystery at all. Mm. 
And there's other factors contributing. I mean, it's, it is multifactorial. It's not quite so simplistic. But when you look at all the things that are contributing, this is not a mystery whatsoever. Yeah, it's true. Like, uh, it actually kind of points, all, all the fingers are pointing in one direction, like that uh, the refined carbohydrates and trans fats, those things, they're not the ideal diet for, you know, practically any human. So what do you think about maybe like uh, plant-based vegan diets and how do they affect these kinds of conditions? Um, it's hard to say. I don't, I don't support veganism because I do think that you are going to end up with some very serious nutrient deficiencies over the long term. Mm -hmm. They may be okay in the short term as a reset or I, I hate this word, but people like detox, you know, if you want a sharp transition into a different way of eating, veganism can be okay. Um, if we're specifically talking about supporting cognitive function, I think you're going to miss out on some very, very key essential nutrients for healthy brain function on a vegan diet b12 dha zinc and choline are the is that five those are the biggest ones that come to mind first if somebody absolutely insists on being vegan then i do recommend very very targeted supplementation and um I, I would also recommend doing a low-carb, high-fat version of veganism. Um, so, like, don't live on fruit and bread and grain. You get a lot of coconut oil, nuts and seeds, um, you know, olives. Legumes are okay. Beans are okay because they'll still at least give you some good protein, um, a lot of fiber. They're relatively low glycemic. But I, I would prefer for people to do a vegetarian diet, lacto-ova, which if you want to avoid animal flesh – I understand that. I respect that as a choice, but at least get eggs and dairy products because they will give you a lot of that B12 and that zinc and choline. That's so essential. Mm. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree with that. Like, uh, even though there might be some, you know, ethic ethical implications about eating meat, then you should still, you should still, as a, if you want to, you know, maximize your cognitive health and longevity, then you should still get some. At least in some in some quantities, some animal products because of the micronutrients. That's that's what I think. And if you know, if somebody out there absolutely refuses to even do that, to eat eggs and dairy, then mm. just do it intelligently and please supplement. You know, and and do a do a low carb, high fat vegan diet. Don't live on dried fruit and and you know protein bars that are really sugar bars and they don't have a lot of protein um, just you know be be intelligent about the choices you make and realize that like I said healthy cognition doesn't happen in a vacuum it requires very specific nutrients to make things happen and a vegan diet does lack a lot of those nutrients mm. you mentioned like these protein bars and that those things take they also have tend to have like these different artificial sweeteners and other other compounds do they have like some sort of an effect on the brain um, I'm going to say something very controversial because I, the research is very mixed on artificial sweeteners. Um, some people do seem to be very sensitive to aspartame as it affects cognition, but I don't find that the artificial sweeteners are very detrimental to cognitive function. And I know a lot of the low carb and ketogenic physicians and researchers don't you know, don't prohibit their patients from using them. But that's that's an individual choice. If someone is not comfortable with that, then they can either go completely without sweetener or 
even use very, very small amounts of honey and maple syrup and molasses and, and natural sweeteners. Just use them in very, very small quantities. What would be like some uh, optimal blood sugar ranges for not only just brain health, but overall longevity? Um, it's hard to say, and I, I, I'm going to have to use the U.S. units. If somebody's watching this overseas, they're going to have to convert. Um, in, the, in U.S. units, I would say anywhere from like, I mean, fasting, fasting, you want to be under 100, even like under 90 is good, but it's, there's a lot, a lot of different things that affect the fasting glucose. So even if yours is a little bit higher, it's not necessarily detrimental. Um, you don't really want to see it above like 150 all that much. I'm not talking fasting. I mean, just after a meal or throughout the day. Generally speaking, the lower the better, but you don't want it to be so low that you're you know, you're dizzy and you're lightheaded, you don't want to be hypoglycemic. It's very hard to give numbers. I mean, anywhere from like 70 to 100 is probably fine. But if, if you do an intense workout, your blood sugar will actually go up. And people get really worried about this because they don't know that this is normal. This is a normal expected thing. If you do a workout, your blood glucose could rise to 110, 120, but it will come back down pretty quickly. And that's an acute thing. Your body is having a stress response that it's supposed to have in response to an intense workout. Mm. Um, the A1C is a good measurement too, though, because that supposedly anyway reflects your average blood glucose over a longer term. So I wouldn't get scared over any one measurement in isolation. It's sort of the long-term trend you want to look at. Mm -hmm. So uh, at least there's some sort of a correlation or uh, between with ketone measurements as well. Um, in some people, yes. In, in most people, the lower the blood glucose, the higher the ketones will be, assuming you're on a low-carb diet and it's not due to medication or due to, you know, hypo, like, if, if you're a type 1 diabetic, that changes things very radically. If you're on a healthy, low-carb or ketogenic diet, in most people, the lower the glucose, the higher the ketones. But that's not always true. Mm -hmm. um, some people, you know, you'll see it on social media. People will post their blood glucose and ketone meters next to each other. And some people tends to be young athletic men, but some people can have glucose as high as the 90s and still have ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate, a 2.0 or higher. Yeah. Most people don't do that. Most people, you know, if their glucose is in the 90s or the 80s, they won't see ketones above one. It may even be more like 0 0.3, 0 0.2. So it, um, it varies. It's, it's an individual thing, but generally speaking, the lower the glucose, the higher the ketones. And, but People, people watching this shouldn't feel bad if they don't very often see high ketones. Some mm. people's bodies just make higher ketones more easily than others. Mm. Yeah, and then it, it might not be a good thing either to have more ketones. Like, uh, it, it's, it's, still, it's still like a source of energy. And if you have, you know, I wouldn't want to have like both elevated levels of ketones and uh, glucose in my body at the same time, all the time, right? Either. And, you, and you generally won't. I mean, in a healthy, well-regulated person, that won't happen because as the ketones get higher, they actually stimulate insulin a little bit to shut off their own production. It's mm. like a very wow. elegant feedback loop. The only time that that doesn't really work is if somebody's diabetic and on medication, mm -hmm. and that kind of interferes with the, with the natural hormonal response. So in a type 1 diabetic, and sometimes in type 2s who are taking insulin, um, if, if you don't have enough insulin 
and your ketones keep rising, they will keep rising. Mm -hmm. And that's, that is a very dangerous situation. So they, they, that like dangerous ketoacidosis is totally different. I'm sure, you know, your viewers know very different from the healthy, beneficial nutritional ketosis. So what could, what can someone do to lower their blood sugar if they, if you do have this slightly elevated? Uh, well, if you're not already doing a low carb diet, do a low carb diet. <laughs> stop yeah, let's say stop eating. Besides the keto, keto aspect. Right. So, um, if in, in the short term, acutely exercise raises glucose right after exercise, but over the long term, regular exercise helps control glucose and it helps bring glucose down. So that's one thing. If somebody is not already exercising, um, proper sleep, people kind of don't realize how important sleep is for healthy glucose regulation. Um, when you don't sleep enough, you, the hormone cortisol is, you know, chronically high. Other stress hormones are chronically high to keep you awake and to give you enough energy. But one of the ways that these hormones keep you awake is by like uh, flooding your body with glucose. Yeah. Now, when your cortisol is high like that, when you don't sleep enough, your glucose isn't going to be as high as if you were eating a lot of carbohydrate, but it's going to be higher than it would be if you were getting healthy sleep. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. And, and again, going with the stress response, learning to manage your stress. If you're one of these people that's always in that, you know, fight or flight mode and always like raring to go and mm. that, that will also keep your, your sugar higher than it would be. And um, there, there are some supplements that seem to help people. Um, chromium, chromium is very good for blood sugar control. Um, some people take uh, alpha lipoic acid. I have not personally had good experiences with alpha lipoic acid, but some people find that that helps. So there's, and there's, there's some other supplements, berberine, you know, they call, they call berberine herbal metformin. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty powerful uh, glucose and insulin helper. Yeah. I've heard, of, I've heard about it as well, but you know, there are also very simple ones like, uh, I, I tend to use like cinnamon and uh, apple cider vinegar. Those, yes. those are also very like household items. Everyone yeah, can. vinegar. Vinegar is actually a, a surprise, surprising little hack. Yeah, true. To raise, to raise, and it it'll actually raise your ketones. I mean, I don't test blood, but I I test my urine now and then, and vinegar mm. will turn those strips a little bit darker. Mm. Is it because of the slight uh, alcohol content, or? I think it's actually because vinegar. Um, how do I explain? Vinegar does something that actually lowers insulin a little bit. And if your insulin is a little bit lower, your ketones might be higher. Mm. Well, yeah, so yeah. De definitely one of those <laughs> very cheap but powerful things. It is. I recommend for people to use, you know, make homemade vinaigrette, get a good olive oil or avocado oil, be generous with the vinegar. And you don't, you don't just have to put it on salad. I mean, I like a good thick vinaigrette on a pork chop mm. or a steak. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of like a sauce. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, what, but what about like fasting? It's also like one of the natural, most, most healing aspects to lower blood sugar. What do you think about fasting? I think fasting is great for some people. Some people should not fast. If you're underweight, I don't recommend fasting. Um, I find a lot, you have to be intelligent about fasting because I find a lot of young, healthy, lean, athletic females wanting to fast because they read about it or they see it on Instagram or something and they think they should fast and they do terribly. Mm -hmm. You know, they, um, they have no energy. They become anxious, depressed. They lose their period. Like all this bad stuff happens. 
fat because if if you fast you also have to eat properly too you can't just starve yourself and that's unfortunately that's what those girls do mm-hmm. um they fast so much and during the the periods of time where they are eating they're not consuming enough food to make up for all the fasting and their exercise and the stress and they just kind of start breaking down um fasting can be very effective and mm-hmm. some people though during a fast you may see your blood sugar go up and down and that's normal you know um people really wonder well, i haven't eaten in 10 hours or you know 42 hours why is my glucose high well because the the body will release you know some of mm. its stored glucose here and there and again your stress levels change there's a lot of different things that regulate the blood glucose but i think for the insulin even more than for your glucose fasting is good for keeping the insulin down mm-hmm. yeah it's true like uh fasting should be thought of as this sort of a quick fix of uh, you know i i i skip breakfast and i skip lunch so I have like these tons of calories I can consume at dinner so I can eat whatever junk I want, you know, I'm, and I'm not getting the micros, I'm still skyrocketing my insulin and, you know, it's going to damage, it's going to jeopardize all the efforts, so. Yeah, I mean, when you, if you do fast, that's not a license to eat whatever you want. When you do eat, you still want to eat a healthy, nutritious, you know, nutrient-dense diet, um, and you, but you should be sure to eat enough calories, mm-hmm. you know, um, even if even if you're trying to lose weight, you don't want to undereat for too long a period of time. You mm. will start to affect your overall metabolism. And but fasting doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be this big project where you're going to not eat for four days or for a week. People could start by just skipping a meal, mm. stop eating breakfast, or stop go, just even even if you don't skip a meal. Like if if the idea of even skipping a meal is scary to people, simply start waiting longer between meals. If you normally eat every three hours, maybe eat every four or five hours. And over time, keep pushing that out until maybe you get to the point where you're only eating twice a day and you're, you've are you got, you know, six or eight or ten hours between your meals. Mm, that's true, yeah. Like, uh, but what about the Alzheimer's disease and the intermittent fasting? Can it, can it be a, a way of treatment? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a nutritionist, so I can't use the word treatment, but it's, um, it's a good strategy. It's a good, uh, I could call it like a biochemical intervention because yeah, if, if you keep your insulin nice and low and your glucose nice and low, your ketones will rise. And the thing with the Alzheimer's, we, we said before, it's this energy shortage in the brain. That energy deficit is specific to glucose. People with Alzheimer's disease, and they've shown this in humans, not just in mice and rats, people with Alzheimer's disease, their brains can still take up and use ketones. So even though they can't use glucose and they're starting to atrophy because of this, they can take up glucose. It's kind of like a hybrid car. The the, the ketones are an alternative fuel source to glucose. Mm. And so when you fast, in most people, the ketones will be higher. And if you are living with Alzheimer's already, then it might even be a good idea during your fast to take a spoonful of coconut oil every now and then because coconut oil has those medium chain triglycerides that are very easily converted into even more ketones. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think fasting can be great for Alzheimer's, but if we're talking about someone who's much, much older or is underweight, you know, a lot of elderly people are already frail and underweight, then I don't recommend fasting for them. But a younger person who's already starting to have cognitive problems, I think they can fast just fine. Mm. 
And I also believe like that uh, fasting it elevates like BDNF hormone as well, so it can also you know maybe grow some new brain cells. Yeah, and exercise does that too, BDNF. And I <laughs> I heard a doctor say this, and I, I told him I would steal it because it's such a great phrase. BDNF is like fertilizer for your neurons. <laughs> nice. So. Yeah, and you know, like we've been led to believe that neurons never repair, they don't regenerate, you can't grow new ones, and that's not true. Mm. Um, I don't think they, they don't repair and regenerate as quickly as other cells in our body, but they're not static, they're not these pieces of concrete that never change and never grow, um, and there certainly are things that we can do to help that process, and fasting and exercise are, are two of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like people, they need to overcome their fixed mindset about first, that they can't do anything about their brain health and secondly like that they can't heal or they can't recover so there's definitely the brain it's, it's very adaptive and uh, plastic in a sense that what you put in so, so shall you receive Come on, you stupid brain. one of the first things they report is sharper thinking if mm. if they had brain fog I mean not everybody does but if it's somebody that had a lot of brain fog or fuzzy thinking one of the first things they report you know after the initial keto flu once once they've got ketones it's like whoa somebody turned the lights on and somebody cleared the cobwebs out so um That's we know true. we know that this is good for the brain yeah so so you're personally following a ketogenic diet as well or I eat a low carb diet. I'm not always, I bounce in and out of ketosis naturally just by what I eat and, and what I'm doing, but I don't always aim to be in ketosis. Sustainable, but just to, you know, develop this metabolic flexibility to treat your, to allow your body to use different fuel sources. Right. To not become fixed in one in regard. Right. So are there like many, some other activities or habits to, so people can use to protect themselves against uh, Alzheimer's? Uh, well, we talked a little about fasting. Um, I mean, exercise. We, we only touched on exercise really briefly. I mean, exercise is good not only because of that BDNF we just mentioned, but it's very it's very good for long-term glucose and insulin regulation. It it helps keep you insulin sensitive. It helps manage glucose, and all of the interventions that that have a um, a potential to be helpful for Alzheimer's or for brain health in general, what they all have in common is that they all improve insulin sensitivity. Mm. Whether it's the fasting or better sleep, stress management, exercise, they all help the body process glucose and insulin better. Mm -hmm. um, so all of that, I think, I think all of that comes into play. Yeah, insulin is like the master switch for, for fuel regulation in a sense. It is, it is, and I, I can't stress this enough, you know, we said this earlier, but there are millions of people, and that's not an exaggeration, millions of people who think they're healthy, and their doctors think they're healthy, because nobody's measuring insulin. When you go for a checkup, they test your fasting glucose as a standard part of the of the procedure, like they they pretty much always check it. A1C is sometimes, I mean, it's starting to become more standardized where you don't really have to specifically request it. If you want your fasting insulin level checked, you have to specifically request it. And your doctor might even look at you funny, like, what, why do you want us to test your insulin? Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is, there's millions of people who have a perfectly normal fasting glucose and even a perfectly normal A1C, but those things are normal because very, very high insulin is keeping them in check. 
And it's actually the insulin itself, not the glucose, that's the big problem in Alzheimer's disease and not just Alzheimer's, people with gout, hypertension, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, benign prostate hypertrophy, BPH, men with enlarged prostate, um, abdominal obesity, all of this stuff comes back to insulin even if your glucose is normal. Wow, that's, yeah. that's quite crazy. It's, it's, it's like, it's such a huge, huge factor in so many chronic modern illnesses and it's being missed simply because nobody's looking at it, nobody's looking for it. But at the same time, like, um, it's not just insulin or, or it's, it's not the high amounts of carbohydrates or blood sugar, like, it's, it's like inter, interlinked with different aspects as well, like circadian rhythms, like we mentioned sleep, it has a huge effect on your uh, fasting blood glucose and things like such. <laughs> Yeah, so sleep <clears throat> sleep is very important for the the glucoregulation, but another thing specific with brain function and sleep is that, you know, during the day like these metabolic waste products build up in the brain, they accumulate, they are cleared out better when we sleep. And they're they're cleared out all the time, but the process is upregulated while we sleep. And um, some of what, you know, Alzheimer's is, is a multifactorial condition. It's not just one thing going wrong. One of the things that's happening in the brain is that these toxic byproducts are building up and they're not being swept away properly. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not getting enough sleep, we're missing out on the full period of time that should give our bodies a chance to get rid of these waste products. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, speak, go ahead. How much time is needed to, you know, have, have this kind of a... Clean up. Oh, you know, I don't know if they've determined the exact amount. I don't, I don't know if, you know, people always say you should get eight hours. I don't know if that's really necessary. Um, I, I don't want to make something up. I can't put a number on it, but pro probably more than six hours. Okay. You know, if you're getting four, five, six hours of sleep, that's probably not enough. Yeah, probably. It's going to catch up, catch up on you. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. I mean, catch up with you is a really great way to look at this because nobody develops Alzheimer's disease overnight. This is something that builds over years and years. And so the, the decrease in brain glucose metabolism can be measured in people as young as their 30s and 40s. And the thing is, when people are that young, the brain is compensating. You have no signs and symptoms of, of Alzheimer's disease or cognitive decline. By the time you start showing symptoms, the disease process has already been in place for years because the whole time you've been compensating and it's only when you reach that tipping point where you're no longer able to compensate. And I think yeah. that's part of why this disease is so hard to reverse and so hard to turn around because by the time you even know you have it, by the time you're starting to have symptoms, it's very, very late in the process. Yeah, it's scary. Like, uh, it's, 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 it's not going to happen overnight and it's, all, it's always like this gradual process of uh, small idiosyncrasies that you don't even pay attention to like exactly first, first of all you know you forget your key somewhere and you at first you might think you know it's just random coincidence but yeah like you said if you do finally notice it then it's gonna be too late in a sense and it, and it also becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense that you're gonna say like oh it's just old age or I do have this goddamn hot Parkinson's disease or whatever, you know, it becomes like a self-fulfilling cycle in a sense. Yeah, and I, I do think that um, a certain amount 
of cognitive decline is probably normal. I mean, when you get to be in your late 80s and your 90s, I don't think it's reasonable to expect to be as sharp as you were in your 20s. But when it comes to Alzheimer's, we're no longer talking about elderly people. There's people in their 50s and 60s being diagnosed with this now. So this is not an illness that's exclusive to, you know, to older people. And so, um, I don't, I mean, I don't want people to get scared. Like if you lose your keys now and then, or you misplace your phone, like, oh, you know, you might not be getting Alzheimer's, but when that happens more and more and more, and you start noticing it because it's happening so much and it's interfering with your life, you've got a big problem. Where's your duffel bag? It's true that there's some biological uh, aspect to aging that you can't escape from completely but at the same time there are so many things that you can control like you like we mentioned the nutrition the exercise but also I like to think that being curious and maintaining this uh, childlike curiosity towards the world and trying to be you know trying to keep your brain engaged is, is also very important to you know maintain your cognition to have a reason to be sharp I think so I mean I I'm I would never say that Alzheimer's disease is, you know, results from like letting your brain get lazy or like, oh, you should have done more crossword puzzles. You should have learned a foreign language. I don't think that can prevent this illness. I do think this is definitely a metabolic biochemical problem, but I do agree that it certainly couldn't hurt and there's no reason not to keep the brain active, whether that is, like you said, learn a new skill, be engaged in the world. Um, even this is going to sound weird, but whatever your dominant hand is, if you're right-handed or left-handed, start performing tasks with your non-dominant hand. It really, it's a trip for your brain. Like brush your teeth with the other hand, you know, start like feeding yourself with the other hand. It really forces you to like rewire those networks, I think. Yeah. If there's some research, I believe in that. But, uh, yeah. You, you you do a lot of research and writing as well, so what does your routine look like of being productive and creative? Oh my god, I, <laughs> I'm not anywhere near as productive as I wish I were. Um, I'm a night owl, so I tend to stay up very late and I sleep much later, and so I, I ease into the day. I don't have one of these great, you know, really productive morning routines. I drink some coffee, I read, I journal, um, I just, lately I've, I went through a very, very bad depression for a long time, so lately I'm doing like positive affirmations and reading, you know, positive type of input, mm -hmm. and then, you know, kind of midday to later in the day is when I start working. Mm. Um, well, yeah, hopefully you're going to get better. But uh, I also found in your website's bio that you have a master's degree in human nutrition, but you were also like an Air Force veteran. You're an Air Force veteran. So can mm -hmm. you, what, what got you to move from that, that area from this into this field? Oh, well, um, I, I enjoyed my time in the military, but I didn't enjoy it enough to make it a career. So mm. I just, I, I was in for four years and I was an airborne linguist. So I speak uh, Korean. I'm very rusty, but I do speak a little bit of Korean. Wow. And um, even before I was in the Air Force, I knew about low carb and I was interested in nutrition, interested in health and had just, you know, been self-taught, teaching myself, doing my own research. And after I got out of the Air Force, I worked as a civilian for the United States Department of Defense, but I didn't, I knew it wasn't for me. I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't passionate about it. And I 
wanted a career that I actually cared about and that I felt like I would really enjoy doing. And so I, that's, I went back to school for nutrition after I got out of the military and, um, and I was still, I was still working for the government, but now, now I'm doing nutrition and, and writing in, in the nutrition field full time. Mm-hmm. So what are some maybe future plans with your research? Where do you he- plan on heading? I don't know yet. Um, still, I, I always want to write. I always want to keep up my blog. Um, I'm thinking about going back to school to be a physician's assistant because I just feel like nutrition for me right now doesn't feel like enough. I want to have a bigger impact. And, um, you know, right now I'm, I'm working on my own. I would like to team up with a group of physicians or even a wellness center or a spa where they want to have a nutritionist in-house as part of their services and because it's, it's very hard to do it on your own independently um mm-hmm. so you know pro- i would hope to go in that direction but still write i don't think i'll ever stop writing mm, yeah it's it's, it's a passion yeah. <laughs> one of my final last questions is uh what would be some practical advice on how everyone can improve their body and their mind maybe one of each um for your body definitely Control your blood sugar and insulin. And again, that's the amount of carbohydrate that you'll be able to eat and still control those things is going to be different from person to person. But, you know, make sure that the foods you eat are good, nutritious, healthy foods. And that doesn't mean they have to taste bad. It doesn't mean, you know, it has to be boring. Like there's so much beautiful, delicious food. Like that's the best thing about this way of eating. You know, you can eat so many different things that are just absolutely delicious. Um, And for the brain, I think the brain is going to benefit from all that, from the physical body. You know, the brain is is not separate from the Mm -hmm. rest of our body. So I think that in terms of the physical health of the brain, again, that controlling blood sugar and insulin. And I'm going to say something that for not just for cognition, but for for your mind, let's say your state of being in your mind, not just mm-hmm. the thinking part of your brain. I I think we underestimate the importance of spending time in nature mm. for the mind. Getting outside in the fresh air by a river or a lake or in the woods. I think that's so important for the human psyche. I do. Yeah, definitely. Have, we'll have like an effect on the physical of your body as well. It reduces stress and so on. So it's definitely one yeah. of those things that yeah. will improve almost everything. And uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, your work? Uh, well, my book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote, and that's available on Amazon. Mm. And uh, 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 Yeah, Amazon, sorry. <laughs> um, my website is toitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T nutrition.com, and I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is toitnutrition. Yeah, I will leave the links in the show notes. So, Amy, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you. I learned a, a lot about my brain as well. <laughs> Great, sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you. All right, take care. All right, that's it. If you want to support this podcast, then make sure you leave us a review on iTunes and other social media platforms. It helps a ton and it's going to help to spread the message out there. Also, check out the links in the show notes for Amy's book and some of my own other body-mind empowerment hacks that you can use to optimize your cognition, health, and well-being. Stay tuned for the next episode. Click the like, subscribe, notification bell as well. Like always, my name is Seem. Stay sharp. Stay empowered.